Hey everyone, it's Caitlin, and as you know, a lot can change in two years. This podcast was formerly known as Burden of Proof, but we are here under a new name. It's going to be just me from now on, and I have a whole lot of updates. I think I'm going to go into this episode with the intention of giving updates, of course, some good news, maybe not so good news, I mean, I don't know. I may go on a rant or two, but there is a light at the end of the tunnel that I am hopeful for and I am excited to share with you. So let's start with how I'm going to structure this podcast moving forward. I'm doing this as a solo host. If you were here the first time around, you'll remember I had a co-host. Although the first episode I ever did was solo, I did eventually add somebody else on and that kind of dissipated over time. but. I'm looking forward to having this be all my own. I think now that there aren't differing views getting in the way politically, it's going to be really helpful. I think it was also really hard to stray away from straight up opinions and dark humor. And I really didn't want it to be that way. It kind of just happened. Like I did in the original release of this podcast, I want to focus on crime that has happened in New England. There are serial killers that have become household names and it's to the point where the same cases, they just get regurgitated over and over and over again. I mean, how many more Ted Bundy podcasts are we going to have come out? (laughs) New England is kind of interesting when it comes to true crime. Did you know that there was a serial killer in Northeastern Connecticut at one point and that he made history for being the last death row inmate to be executed in our state? Did you know that the Boston Marathon bombings are tied to a triple homicide in the neighboring town of Waltham? That anniversary is actually coming up on the 11th, the Waltham triple murder. And I definitely want to cover that. I think New England doesn't get a lot of national attention regarding crime because we have the smallest states in the country. We don't have many high profile cases that make it national, let alone international. I don't know if that's a good thing or not, but I'm gonna assume probably. But I want to bring awareness because we have many interesting cases and many of them haven't been solved. Two areas of criminal justice I'm very passionate about are unsolved murders and missing and unidentified persons cases. I want to highlight those cases and open them up for the potential of being solved because no one deserves to be left behind. Why don't we get into the not so pleasant topic, which is the reason why this podcast fell off the face of the earth for a while. As you recall, if you aren't a newbie, my very first episode was released in March of 2020. I dedicated my very first episode to Sophia McKenna and Spencer Mugford, who are presumed to be victims of a Memorial Day weekend boating accident back in 2018. She and Spencer disappeared along the coast of Long Island Sound while on a late night sailing trip. And because of social media behaviors, the timeline of events leading up to the disappearance and personal connections that were discovered within the very police departments that responded to the incident, it has been long suspected that her former boyfriend, his family, and his friends may know a lot more than they are willing to share. So to give you a rundown, Sophia had been in an abusive relationship with police involvement less than a month before she disappeared. When she disappeared, it was just days before she was about to testify at a domestic violence hearing for her ex-partner, Austin Pero Cordova. Even more damning, he and his sibling were supposed to attend a party at a friend's house the very same night, but they had canceled their plans. 
Because the accused has a constitutional right to face their accuser, the case was dropped and would be nullified after a year should Austin not reoffend. So I spoke about this in the first episode, I'm pretty sure. Regardless of whether there was some sort of love triangle involved or not, two people were greatly affected by the actions of someone who continues time and time again to get away with bad behavior. If you were here back in 2020, you will know about the experiences I went through when this episode was released. I'm warning you now that I am not holding back on what has occurred in the last couple of years, so buckle up. There was a lot of backlash following the release of my episode. Unfortunately, I wasn't the only one. The producers of Missing on Long Island and a YouTuber who covered this case also received threats and harassment. Some of it came from the very same people that wanted to get Sophia's story out there. Every time I tried to release subsequent episodes that weren't about Sophia and Spencer, the harassment and threats would start again. If you were here circa 2020 and 2021, you'll know I covered cases in Connecticut, Rhode Island, and Massachusetts that were in no way connected to them. But of course, I would get the drama every time. I would have Austin's little minions and yes-men sending me messages. Oh yeah, I'm calling him out by name since he won't have a conversation with me and he wants to hide behind the police and his friends. But listen, I get it. It came across as an op-ed. I did the best that I could with the little information that I had. And you know what? If it came across a certain way, oh well. I had never said straight out that Austin did it. I didn't, actually. I presented other theories. And I pointed to why it didn't make sense or why I didn't think that. That's, that's what ended up happening. You know, I didn't say Austin did it. I said, and I, I'll admit it, I said, I believe that this is what happened because of this, this, and this. Having an opinion and stating something as fact are two completely different things. And I think people forget that. So I was threatened with my livelihood, my life, my career, yada, 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 by his friends and other people. I still remember being on the phone with Detective Silvestri at 10 o'clock at night a couple of summers ago because it got so bad. And him and I both were laughing at the sheer idiocy of it all, but I won't lie, it's kind of jarring getting your first threat when you're new to podcasting. I'm going to guess, though, that it comes with the territory. So despite documented and digital proof of Austin's actions leading up to the disappearance, he still has people to back him up, even his ex's own mother and brother, which has baffled me and others for so long. But you know what? At the end of the day, I don't think that it's coming from a bad place. I think it's coming from a place of somebody who's been grieving the loss of their family member for so long. And that is the last piece of her daughter that Michelle has left. And she probably doesn't want to let that go. And I totally understand. I never wanted to cause any harm. I never wanted to make her feel a certain type of way. That wasn't my intention. Her and I having a falling out was primarily because of a misunderstanding between her and another family member. And you know what, there's, there's, no, there's no way to change her mind and that's fine. You know, I respect that. I'm not gonna 
continue to hash something out that just it really is not relevant anymore at this point frankly we all know that his behavior is suspicious the thing is i've come to realize that if you're not pro austin you will be doxxed and harassed if you don't cave in to the narrative of it just being a disappearance you're screwed and in the beginning i questioned why i was dealing with it all because i acted within the law i did nothing wrong the only crime I committed was bruising an ego or two. I probably pissed off some authorities too, but you know what? I eventually learned to let it roll off my shoulders and to not take it personally. I think there are people at Tysa's case that are spoiled in the sense that they are used to getting their own way all the time. I think they have never had to be held accountable for their vile behaviors because people are always there to save them and make excuses for them. I believe that they may have deliberately and intentionally tried to steer the investigation in another direction and pin it on somebody else. I also think they have a sense of entitlement where they are under this impression that they are above the law. But how could they not? It's no secret that the media can be a thorn in the police's side, especially the mainstream media. I think many journalists struggle with boundaries when it comes to assessing case information. And I've had to learn to keep those boundaries in place. It can be difficult sometimes, I'll admit. But I think with other journalists, there's almost this sense of entitlement because of Freedom of Information Act laws. But they forget or try to dispute the fact that there are exceptions to FOIA. It is understandably very frustrating not to have all the answers. But it is so vital not to get too involved because it can seriously compromise an investigation. Compromising an investigation is not worth chasing leads to see who can get the biggest and best story. It's not a competition. Somebody's death or disappearance is not a competition. The cold hard truth is that the only people who really should have access to every single piece of information are law enforcement and private investigators. Which is why when I was told that I couldn't have certain information, which I didn't think I would anyway, but doesn't hurt to try, I left it alone because I don't want to cause any issues. But I do have so many unanswered questions and I want to get those answers if I can legally do so. So to any officer listening who is familiar with this case, please email me at the email in the episode description and answer the following. These aren't just my questions, it's other questions that people have sent me to send to law enforcement. Why hasn't the FBI gotten involved if this case occurred on navigable waters? If the alleged incident happened in Connecticut waters and the boat was found at Orient Point in New York, that sounds like more than one jurisdiction, no? Freedom of Information Act requests for Sophia's case have been denied under an exemption for active cases. So per protocol, there needs to be proof shown that the case is active. The last any of us knew, it was suspended. So what's the real story on that? Last thing, why has this case gone through so many detectives? The case has only been around for, what, four years now? Almost five. So you've got the detectives that were part of the town that first responded. We have Randy, who he's now retired. So of course that makes sense. And I really do wish him the best on that. I was really excited for him when I found out that he was retiring. But now we have Trooper Clackery. What's going to happen down the road? Is it going to get passed around again? There is a really sad reality to Sophia's short time here on Earth. 
She had many happy moments, but also very sad moments, very heartbreaking moments, more than the average person. Back in 2020, before everything went down, I was told via phone interview with a very close family member about the McKenna family dynamics. It wasn't something I asked about at all, but I will say that a lot of it was corroborated in a podcast Sophia's mother went on called True Crime Twins. Not all of it, but a lot of it. Looking back now, it seems as if Sophia was set up for failure the moment she was born. She struggled with living in a toxic household. She had a tumultuous relationship with her father. She suffered from bipolar disorder. And then she had to experience the never-ending cycle that is intimate partner violence. I think many women and girls out there can relate to Sophia. Becoming a massage therapist was one of the biggest accomplishments of Sophia's life. It was her ticket to a more stable life. I have no doubt that Spencer could have added to that stability and could have treated her better. But a late night adventure on the water took that all away. Just like that. 21 years. Gone. Before I wrap up this part of the episode, I want to give you the contact information for Sophia's new detective. His name is Detective Justin Clackery, badge number 516, and he is with the Connecticut State Police Eastern District Major Crime Squad at Troop E in Montville, Connecticut. You can contact him via email at justin.clackery at ct.gov. That is J-U-S-T-I-N dot C-L-A-C-H-R-I-E at ct.gov or by phone at 860-250-4303. Again, 860-250-4303. And when you contact him, don't send him any speculation or opinions because I'm sure he's gotten enough of that. <laughs> All of this drama I experienced was definitely stirred up with the intention to silence me, and I guess in some ways it worked for a while because it made me uninterested in continuing this podcast. My heart started to not be in it anymore, and I've actually deleted every episode but the one about Sophia and Spencer because I felt like there was now this big stain on my podcast. However, I want to re-record those episodes in addition to recording new ones, not just because a couple of them have some updates like Connie DeBate's case and the Boston Marathon bomber, but something in me changed. Recently, I was connected with an investigative journalist who is writing an investigative piece for a major publication about Sophie and Spencer. Yeah, they're getting freaking national attention now. I'll be transparent at first, I wasn't going to return an inquiry, not because I'm afraid for my life, because <laughs> I'm not afraid of anyone involved in this case. It's more so that I'm worried about my family, which is reasonable, because I just didn't need the BS that I know will ensue. But I realized that not doing anything at all would let the naysayers win. The longer we go without answers, the more it hurts Sophie and Spencer and those who love them. And the longer we allow an alleged domestic abuser and his supporters to have a say and run the show, the longer the case goes unsolved. I also believe that Spencer has been lost in all of this, in part due to certain people trying to paint him as a bad person and also because of how quickly his case was closed. I do know that this article is going to help really shed some light on both of them though. So while I am damned if I do and damned if I don't, I would rather be damned if I do. So, yeah, I did speak with the journalist, and hey, something happens, it happens. <laughs> you know why. 
Regardless of why Spencer died and Sophia disappeared, their families deserve answers. And in terms of my podcast, and in terms of my podcast, I was letting those who weren't happy with it take away a part of why I even started it to begin with. I wanted to raise awareness and give back to families who are navigating the justice system when they shouldn't have to. I want to bring back ethics into true crime podcasting and investigative journalism, even though it kind of went in a different direction, but I want to still try to do that because I think it's important. Let me pose a question for you guys. How many podcasters or YouTubers do you see or hear putting on makeup or eating greasy food around a coffee table while talking about a very serious and touchy subject matter? I watched a YouTube video recently about it and it was called, Do True Crime YouTubers Even Care? And the host, Piney, was so spot on that he pretty much said exactly what I have been feeling all these years. Can you name at least one podcaster who does advocacy work or donates to charities or families that are victims of crime? Because I can only think of three off the top of my head. That is not to say there aren't more, because I'm sure there is, but to only think of three, that's not enough, and it's unacceptable to me. It's sad that so many people get into this for the money or the shock value, either not realizing or not caring that they are profiting off of somebody else's tragedy in the name of entertainment. They're not doing a thing to give back to the very people they are exploiting, and it is my intention to change that. It has never been about fame or money or entertainment like I was accused of post-episode. It's about advocacy and altruism. The truth is, I have been on both sides of the fence when it comes to the legal system. I work in it as a paralegal, and I've been a survivor navigating it. I am a person who is part of a marginalized community. I'm not talking about race or sexual orientation either. I want to take my real world and personal experiences and use them to help someone else. If I can help just one person or one family, I would be so happy and so fulfilled. I want to get to a point in this podcast where I know it is making a difference. You know, things like, are you a family that can't afford a private investigator? Let me help you pay for some of those expenses. Want to get a billboard for your loved one to display over major highways? I want to be able to say, hell yeah, let's get to designing and let me take that load off your shoulders. I've always found it really odd that there are podcasters that make six figures a year, probably more, depending on the podcast. And I haven't heard of them purchasing a billboard for families of missing people. And I know that those billboards are not cheap. They do not come cheap. I've always felt that because I am aspiring to be an attorney, I have the moral duty, just like any other person in the legal or criminal justice sectors, to get back to the community and use my platform and resources to advocate for change and to advocate for the voiceless. Because let's be honest, in this country, criminals as of late seem to have more rights and more resources to help them than their victims and survivors do, especially within the last two years. I wanna change that. So no, I will not be silenced. I'll stop at nothing to help there be one less family without answers, and I will stop at nothing to bring back ethics and advocacy to true crime. And if I get backlash for it, so be it.